chapter 1, and I'll be reading just the first um, 14 verses of the first chapter of Acts. Hear now God's word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heavens as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and John, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a momentous thing to dwell upon in your word. Here we have the promise and the hope of who we are now as we stand here amongst each other, that your spirit would be among us, that your proclamation would bring about the furthering of your kingdom. Father, thank you that we get to participate in this. Help us to see your glory in the reading and the hearing in the preaching of your word this day. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> in the 1930s, about a year after C.S. Lewis converted from theism to Christianity, he wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Regress. Um, he intended it to be a book that would be a type of continuation 
of John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. And the main character in this particular story was actually named John. And he would encounter different uh, people just very much like in Pilgrim's Progress. And then one of the particular characters that he encountered was Mother Kirk. And Mother Kirk tried to direct him and guide him in the way in which he should go. And at first, he did not decide to go that particular path. He decided to take the harder path. But throughout the book, you see that Mother Kirk is one to teach, to disciple, to nourish, to guide uh, one toward wisdom and truth and faithfulness. Of course, he is thinking of the church, Mother Kirk, Mother Church, the Scottish term that was familiar term in recognizing the church was Mother Kirk. Now, for us today, we often, because of our good American Protestant rootedness, we tend to toss off those type of terms when we consider the church. We see that that's possibly more associated with maybe Roman Catholicism or even Anglicanism, and we don't really think of the church so much as mother. But as we go in today's sermon, I thought it was, again, timely, and I think I've done this before in the past during this time of the year. It is a interesting and um, novel and great novel thing, but a neat thing that we are able to have Mother's Day coming very close to what the church has celebrated for a very long time as Ascension Week. Um, Thursday, it would be considered the day that this particular passage account occurred um, after the resurrection of Jesus when he ascended up. And so this Thursday is historically known throughout the world um, for many generations as Ascension Day. And then next Sunday would actually be considered Ascension Sunday for many churches And then the following, which is going to be right where we'll be in our particular pace in the book of Acts, will be um, Pentecost. We'll actually touch on it a little bit next week um, and then dwell on it more thoroughly on the actual Sunday of Pentecost Sunday. And so I am thankful for the timing of all of these things because um, for those of you who may follow the church calendar a bit in your own life, but... For those of you who may follow the American holiday of Mother's Day, it is a timely thing to bring these things together in the word and to be motivated and provoked to dwell upon the scriptures of what the church is in light of these things that we may bring into our lives through the sentimentality of holidays, through the remembrance of our own mothers, because the scriptures is ultimately what has postured the church to be that of like a mother. And I want to just go through a few passages before we go into Acts 1 to just reinforce that it is not just because um, it's a, a neat thing to be able to associate the church with mother, but it is a biblical thing. Um, even back in the third century, the North African bishop Bishop Cyprian said that he cannot have God as father who does not have the church as mother. Now that might seem very scary for us in this day because a lot of people and a lot of things in our society um, highlight the weaknesses of the church and the abuses of the church. But this is a biblical concept that when the church is being faithful to their calling, they are very much taking on the role of a mother in the discipling of God's children. 
We see this in multiple passages in scripture. We see it in Revelation in chapter 21. It says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. We see the church as the bride of Christ. We see it also in the epistles, um, especially in Ephesians. We see it in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. We see that this heavenly Jerusalem is the new Jerusalem, is the church of God. And then when we go to Galatians chapter 4, verse 25 through 27, it says, Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Here we see that this new Jerusalem, this kingdom of God, they're full of God's children. When we are both children and we are also mother, we are also children and we are bride. And that is our posture before God the Father, before God the Son. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. Yes, it is true that when we think about the statement that Cyprian said, that it should not be the scary thing, that when we think of the fact that if we're going to have God as our father, we must have church as our mother. But what another way to say it is that when the church is being faithful in obedience to God the Father and God the Son, that it's posturing of discipleship and affection and love for one another and for those who are his that have not yet come to know him would have that gentle affection like a mother has for a child. And as we think about Mother's Day, we can think about all kinds of situations about our past mothers, 
and those who had nourished us. I have two mothers. I have the blessing of all kinds of examples of mothering. And then I have this queen in my home who has mothered the nine children in my home. And it does teach me how I should be as a pastor, how we should be as a church. We need to take those things that God has taught us in his word and in creation in the distinctions between man and women and the roles in which he has called them and to teach us how to live as a church. In this age particularly, when there is so much confusion of the distinctions of our callings by God as men and women. I was actually thinking about the introduction of this sermon when I was in the bathroom, and I started thinking about those in the church, and just like Jonathan mentioned, we have all of these children, and all of these children have mothers, but I was thinking about how our church is with teaching and discipling our children, but also how those in our church have sought out those who are not initially of us to nourish them to raise them up as those who are the children of God. And as I was thinking about that and I was thinking about the Hope family, Tim comes walking into the bathroom. I was actually thinking about Tim at that moment. It was kind of a creepy, funny kind of situation. Thinking about how these very examples of the mothering in our congregation is to embellish and magnify the things that are of the truth in God's word. It is a lesson to us in how we should live with one another and care for one another. And Paul tells us that that is the posture that he had to those Christians in Thessalonica. And may it be the posture that we have to each other. And may we see in Acts chapter 1 the power that is behind that, the love that is behind that. This is going to be a fairly simple sermon because I want to go really slow through the introduction of Acts because I think it highlights and outlines for us what the rest of the book is going to be like. It is very easy for us. I I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's just the style that Luke has here or we see it also with Paul. A lot of times the language that's used in introductions of these books of the Bible often kind of lose me, that I'm I'm really looking for the narrative. I'm looking to get into the meat of the passage. I was just studying Romans 1 yesterday with the young men, and when you read Romans 1, most of us, when we recall Romans 1, we think about the wrath of God and the righteousness of God and the judgment against unrighteousness. But the introduction of Romans 1 is about the steadfast love of God. We often don't think that because we kind of rush through the introduction and we get into all the nitty gritty and all the drama about the unrighteousness of what people are doing. And here, if we're not careful, we can run through the introduction of Acts 1 and miss out that we have an outline of what is going to show us, what what God is showing us that is the nature of the beginnings of the church. One thing to keep in mind about Acts that I think that a lot of us in this particular age gets wrong, that this is not just some example of the early church. It's not like we're just going back in time and getting a snapshot of what the early Christians were doing. A lot of times when I've heard even 
people referencing Acts, they'll say, well, the early church did it this way or that way. And we're not really the early church, but we can learn some things from it. It is a whole lot more than just the example of the early church. It is the initiation of the New Testament church. In many respects, it's the birthing of the church. And what is being said here is the fruit of what we talked about last week with the work and the prayer and the intercession of Jesus Christ. And it is what is going on in us now. In many respects, it is very unique because it is the initiation of the New Testament church. So there are very things that are unique about it, but it is foundational to what we should be about right now. I think the thing that we miss when we look at it as just an example is kind of like when we visit another church and we go, oh, they kind of did it like this. You know, we were down in Savannah a couple of weeks ago and I was amazed at how they set up their communion table and I was like, oh, I love it. This is exactly what I've always wanted to see in, in a traditional setting. Oh, I love this and, and I, I wish we could do something like this. It's not like that here. We're not just looking back at just a historical part of the church. We are looking at the fulfillment of the promises that God has made from the very beginning of time and throughout the whole Old Covenant. It is now being poured out and that is why it is being brought in such a way that this ascension that we hear about in this passage is that there's an explosion. And then when we get to Pentecost, there's a, this complete explosion of fulfillment that is being done. And it should set in our minds an understanding of who we are and where we are right now. Most of us do not think about this time period in our life as the age of the church, the age of the Holy Spirit. But throughout redemptive history, that is what we are living in right now. And when we hear people talk about, when we think about right now, we're like, oh, this is, you know, they've already talked about, um, I don't know who was talking to me, it might have been Maurice, or somebody was talking about how this is like the, the COVID generation. Was that you that was talking about? You know, we, we look at things very microscopically and we go, okay, everything's gonna be kind of defined in this generation based upon things that are going on in COVID. And we have, you know, generation X and generation Z and, and then we go back to the baby boomers and we kind of look at things very incrementally, and those are things that are fine to review and when we consider society, but what is overarching and foundational and what is going on today and right now is that this is the age of the church, of the kingdom of God. This is the end age in the age of the Holy Spirit. That is what is predominantly occurring on this earth today, and we are a part of that church. We are a part of that work and that Holy Spirit is residing in us. So as we go into this book, this should be not just informative for us of who we are and where we are throughout the timeline of history, but it should be informative to us of what we should be doing and what we should be hoping in. It should be for us especially in this microscopic age of all these things that I just mentioned, it should be a tremendous hope for us.
that we are not bound by these little things that occur from one year or one decade to the next, that we have this hope and this reality in a very tangible way, we have this hope. Let's just go slowly in the first couple of of sentences here in Acts 1. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. That is a mouthful of things being said in this one introduction statement. First of all, keep in mind that Luke is a physician, a Gentile physician, and his ways of talking and his ways of presenting things are going to have a much more technical mindset about it. Though he is looking at things in the very spiritual realm and looking at how things are being fulfilled in the promise, he says things like the things that Jesus began to do and teach. And he's talking about physical things. He's talking about active, actual circumstances. These are things to be displayed to us in the reality of time, that Jesus did these things. Jesus taught these things. He was raised from the dead. He was taken up with witnesses very purposely by the command of God. Jesus wanted people to see the physical ascension of Jesus Christ. And God ordained Luke to describe this to us in the book of Acts. And this sets forth a foundation for us for us to go back and meditate upon and to live as the continuation of that witness by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, he says it was taken up, it really happened with witnesses, and he gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, which were the original, unique witnesses of the actual events of the initiation of the church whom he had chosen. And so we're going to see here that these things are real in reality. This happened. We are going to see that they are dwelling and meditating upon the commands and word of God. And it is by the Holy Spirit that those words are empowered as the apostles are going to be given the charge to be witnesses of what has occurred in the world. And if you think about where Luke is coming from, he is being technical about it. These things really happen. This is not just poetic language or some imagination that he had or some dream that he had. This is something that occurred. And then Jesus presented himself alive to them. Again, he's a physician. He's talking about a living human being. God has been raised from the dead. And after his suffering, by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus spent 40 days in the resurrected flesh teaching the apostles as a proof 
to the world that he has conquered over death. And this is the foundation of the New Testament church. This is the foundation of what we are here in our profession of faith as Communion Fellowship Church. It defines everything. And it should be our greatest hope in the whole world from age to age, from time period to time period, from suffering and celebration. This is foundational. One of the things to notice here well, let me keep reading and I'll come back. And it says, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he, had, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. These two paragraphs are very interesting. So again, here we have Luke describing actual accounts. We see that Jesus is doing these things. Jesus is raised from the dead. He's already given a, a precursor that Jesus was taken up. And he's also talking about how God has appointed through proof and command and through the power of the Holy Spirit for the apostles to do these things. But then he changes gears and he says, and while they were staying, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart. So he's going back to the people and we see that all of this wondrous event, he's connecting it with the people of God. There's this commonality of how he is staying with them, with the people. He is dwelling with the people. He is communicating with the people. And then he gives them the nature of what is happening with them that with John you have this baptism of repentance but then when, with the Holy Spirit, you have this baptism of resurrection by the Holy Spirit. And we see how this is foundational for us and how we understand the nature of the church, how we understand the nature of our hope. He keeps bringing in these major theological realities. And then right in verse 6, he says, so when they had come together, again, we go back to the people we see what God is doing. We see what the Holy Spirit is doing. We see the great reality. And then he changes gears and he goes back and he says, and when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? I want us to look at that kind of dance that Luke is doing because this is what's going to happen throughout the book of Acts and what we'll also see in the posturing of the epistles that follow the book of Acts. Often you will see that there's this great realities of God's fulfillment of the kingdom being described to us in what the work of the Son of God and what the work of the Spirit is doing. And then we see this kind of mundane circumstances of, of gathering of God's people. Because we often think they're kind of removed from each other. And this is one reason why I think it's easy for Satan to deceive and distract us when we are living out as the church today. We don't get up in the morning, in, in most cases, I'm not, I'm hopefully not insulting some of your all's spiritual maturity, but we don't typically wake up on Sunday morning and we think, okay, we're gonna be assembling and gathering together and praying together 
with the embodiment of the third person of God (laughs) in the fulfillment of his great plan for the kingdom of God. I don't think that's what's interwoven in our thoughts when we say we're going to church. And it's sometimes kind of difficult when we, you know, go into a gym, you know, going in here and we're seeing different kind of signs and we think about the challenges that we're facing throughout the day with one another. We get into a spat or a disagreement about a praise song that we're listening to in the car or we get into a spat with one of the children and one of the children doesn't want to do this or that, can't find the shoes. We're not usually thinking this is a part of that same kind of fulfilling power of what God is talking about in Acts 1. And even though it is unique to the circumstances in the time of God, we are a part of this. And Luke is structuring the explanation of what God is doing, and God is ultimately structuring and understanding for us that the nature of the church is these grandiose realities of the work of God in the Spirit through the mundane work of the church, of God's people gathering together. I'm going to admonish some of you here today, and, I, and I'm doing it in all of love, and, and I'm not mad, but when we look at the end of this particular reading that I gave today, and we think about what had happened after Jesus rose from the earth and ascended, the people of God gathered and prayed together, the men and women gathered and prayed. If you look at what's going on here, it's like momentous circumstance, then the people are together with God. Momentous circumstance after Jesus ascended, and then they're together with one another, praying. And then the Holy Spirit breaks through, and the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit pours out upon them after they heard the word preached by Peter. Everywhere when the great, these are the greatest things that ever happened in all of history. The resurrection, the ascension, the Pentecost and pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And during all of that time, God's people are huddling together, dwelling upon the things that he's doing, pointing back to his commands and to his word and praying together. There is nothing greater that God's people could be doing than what is being set forth as the initiation and coronation and the example of what we should be doing in our lives. We should have this on our mind. We should try to remember how God initiated the church when we come. And it should encourage us, every single one of us, to try to be here for prayer when we gather for prayer. When we are gathered together for the proclamation, the reading, and the preaching of his word, we should be longing and hoping, God, I want a taste of what you did with the church in Acts 1. There is no other place where he promises that he will react in that kind of way. There is a promise of how he is going to do his work. And it does seem kind of mundane. If you think about some of the things that were going on, I would just pass out if I got to see some of those things. You see Jesus raised from the dead, raised from the dead, I'd pass out. You know, he raises from the earth, I just want to pass out. But what they do is they gather. They huddle. And they encourage each other 
through prayer and remembering God's word. They get centered in what he said. That's why I'm saying if we go through and we dissect what we see here, commands, we start remembering that he was taken up. We start remembering how he has established and organized his church through the apostles. And then we see that they get together and they pray and they listen. Then we continue on. It says, here it says, And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Let me stop there. I am pretty certain that if we did the right kind of marketing, if I said, okay, guys, let's get together and we're going to do a talk about when we think the end times are going to occur. And if we put a lot of things up on the State Street and some banners and maybe some Facebook marketing and maybe even a, maybe a TV ad. I don't know if anybody watches just regular TV ads anymore, but I think we would probably get some people show up if we said, I, we think we know when Jesus is going to return. Let us explain to you our calculations. Well, God says it's not for us to know. Now, he's talking about, I think, ultimately right here, I think he's talking about the destruction of Israel primarily in this particular path. But when we think about end times, people are really enthralled. And that's exactly what God's people were. It says, hey, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or season that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, maybe if we use words like power and the Holy Spirit, that might intrigue some people. But what he is saying here is usually not things that we're really thinking about. Jesus is saying that the church is going to receive power by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of his throughout the world. Well, that's not as exciting. It is more exciting. It should be. But we are so easily distracted by things. And he is not saying that that's not an interesting thing for us to know when, but he's telling us this is more important for you to be focusing on. It is more important for you to understand what power God has granted to the church to be his witnesses throughout the world. That's more important than knowing when Jesus is going to return. That should be more on our minds. And it says, while they were gazing into the heaven, as he went, behold, two men, two angels, stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you, as you saw him go into heaven. This establishes for us a foundation of what our hope is. That is why we say in our confession of faith that we look for the return of Jesus Christ. We are in this particular age. We are waiting for him to return as he left. And what do we do during that time? We gather and pray. It says, They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away, which is only about three quarters of a mile, if you wonder. 
And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And all these with one accord were were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This is the posturing of the church. This is our response to all these things that we are learning from his word, but we're learning from the proclamation of the church before us and the church before us now. This is how we should be waiting on the Lord as he returns, preparing for what God is doing. These are the realities of the life in which we live. It's not just some individual dream. It's not just some personal walk. It is a corporate walk of us together longing for the return of Jesus Christ. This is the fulfillment of the things that Jesus said and did. If you look at what I preached on last week, that's the reason why I went into John 15, 16, and 17. It says that Jesus said he was going to send the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. And he's going to be pointing everyone back to Jesus about being a witness to Jesus. And how is that going to manifest itself? Through the people. The Holy Spirit is going to be in the people to bear witness of what Jesus has done. Witness of physical things that they saw in the apostolic age and in the things that we have been taught and that we see in our own transformation of life. What's the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to convict the world concerning sin. He's going to be convicting the world concerning righteousness and judgment. He's going to be opening the eyes of truth. And he will guide Christ's disciples into truth. He will be the power and the love and the fulfillment of this motherly posture toward the children of God. Those who are raised up knowing that they are his and even reaching out to those that do not yet know that they are his. The Holy Spirit will speak and declare what Jesus speaks and glorify Jesus. Adam and I had a little bit of fun this week. We were listening to a podcast that I just love. And if you've never heard of it, I'd encourage you to to listen to to the the Just Thinking podcast. And there's these three uh, black ministers that um, they get together and they talk about different things that are going on. And he was talking about this movement called the Leave Loud movement that is going on in the evangelical church where um, it's encouraging blacks that are amongst predominantly white congregations to, to leave their congregation if they don't feel like their church is doing enough to celebrate their blackness. And the one particular person who's leading this movement listed as number one is that you need to leave when the Holy Spirit tells you to leave. And then it moves on to other things that are really not at all in God's word. And they were having a lot of fun with that saying, you know, well, if, if it was the Holy Spirit telling you to leave the church, then that's all you should need. But the problem is, is how are you going to know that the Holy Spirit is saying one thing versus maybe something you ate 
not settling well with your stomach and making you feel a certain way when you were dreaming that night. Well, Jesus Christ said that the Holy Spirit will speak what I speak. What's in his word. But so many people today, their terminology is, well, the Holy Spirit told me this, or God gave me a word. I tell you, the Holy Spirit will never say anything to you with authority that Jesus did not say. And there is no confidence. And you need to be very careful, and you I'm speaking in general, to ever say, well, the Holy Spirit told me to do this and told you to do this, especially if it has to do with leaving the church, if it does not parallel the word of God. It says that the Holy Spirit is going to be bearing witness to the ones in which he proceeds, which is the Father and the Son. He will be declaring, therefore we, as his witnesses, will be doing the exact same thing. I know that it is one particular sermon one out of many that will not be enough to encourage us to understand what age we are in. I was getting just a glimmer of it as I was preparing the sermon, just thinking about we are in this tremendous age. Turn off your news and read Acts. Dwell upon the age of the church and the Holy Spirit. It may not be as articulate here in a way that would make you get all excited about it because God in his own will decided to bring about his kingdom through a bunch of sleepy-headed, weak people like us. Those people were just like us. They were confused sometimes. They were saying things off the cuff that weren't always accurate getting themselves in trouble. We see that throughout the scriptures. But God in his mercy and his might decided to go through us because we have the Holy Spirit. I want to end with just a reading of Daniel as a reference to the fulfillment of Daniel with the ascension. We see here in Daniel the prophecy of what happened when Jesus rose from the earth to his place of power and dominion over all things. And that's what he did when he rose from the earth. There's not, you know, think about the earth where you, he's not going to a, a place. The whole point is, is that he is reigning over all things. And he tells us that when he comes back, he's going to gather us with him in the heavens. But listen to this. Maybe this will encourage you as you know now the fulfillment of this promise by seeing what was portrayed in Acts as we have this technical apostle of Christ through Luke giving us the proof and details that this occurred. Listen to how Daniel described what was going to occur and what did occur with Jesus Christ in Daniel 7, verse 9 through 14. It says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. 
His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking and as I looked, the beast was killed and the body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season of time. I saw in night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus Christ, resurrection and ascension, the pouring out of the fire of the Holy Spirit, is the fulfillment of this prophecy in Daniel. And we are living in that age today, and it is among you today. May you pray that God would set that fire alive in you, and that as we come together now at this table, proclaiming as his witness, repentance and faith, the resurrection from the dead, the resurrection from the cross and crucifixion of Jesus. May we do this faithfully until he returns. Let us pray.